Hi, I'm Darby. It's February 11th, and you're watching Horizon Church Online. You can hardly talk about money and what Jesus taught about money without at some point mentioning the story of the rich young ruler. I've heard so many conflicting and confusing and sometimes uh, downright wrong teaching on this passage, so it's important that we talk about it since we're doing our Money Matter series and talking about what Jesus wants us to do with our money, what he thinks about our money, and how we should respond to his commands about money. And the story is in Luke chapter 18. We're going to get to it in just a minute. Uh, but essentially the teaching is, Jesus told this rich young man, give away everything you have. And I've seen where it's become almost like a trendy thing for young Christians to be like, I'm pulling a rich young ruler, I'm going to sell everything I have, give to the poor. And I've seen this with some of my friends who say, I'm going to pull a rich young ruler, sell all my stuff, and go on a mission trip. And, you know, they sell their iPad 2 to raise money to go on the mission trip. They come back home, they get an iPad 3. You know, they sell their Xbox 360 to go on the mission trip, and they come back and get an Xbox One. That's not what Jesus was talking about. You know, he's not talking about a deep cleanse of our possessions so that we can get the newer, better model and not feel morally bad about it when we come back. And sometimes I think Christians almost feel bad when they have nice things, like, oh, no, this is... I feel guilty about this, or I feel like I'm going to be judged by those who have less, or somehow it's just wrong to have nice things. And sometimes people refer to this passage as kind of the ammunition for why you shouldn't have nice things, or why you shouldn't have a nice car, or a nice home, or enjoy some of the things that you had. And usually I hear the argument something like this, Jesus had nothing. In fact, he tells us that. He says, hey, uh, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but he says, I don't have a home. I'm a traveling preacher, a traveling rabbi. Uh, and they traveled around and spoke in different synagogues, and they would share their teachings with the nation of Israel. And so he says, I live a nomadic life. I don't have possessions because I don't want to drag them around, and I don't have a home. I mean, he had his home back in Nazareth where his family was, but he didn't have his own home or place. He... he build up very few earthly possessions and so people will point to that and say we should live the same way the only problem is you never see jesus actually say that in fact jesus had several followers who had great wealth uh, for instance he's buried in the tomb of joseph of arimathea a man who's quite wealthy and uh jesus um, jesus's followers couldn't afford to buy him a tomb this man gives up his tomb for Jesus. Uh, so Jesus never condemned the people who had wealth and said, hey, that's a horrible thing. Um, but he did have some countercultural teachings about wealth, as we're going to see in this story. And like I said, I've seen some people really abuse this story. Even pastors really abuse this story in order to get a certain result out of people. I never want to be manipulative with God's word, especially not manipulative to my people uh, to get you to do something. Uh, ultimately, the Holy Spirit has to move in your heart and my heart to produce change in us. And I think that Jesus says plenty without me trying to twist it into something that he's not trying to convey. But while I was in college, one of my professors shared with me a story where they had a guest speaker come in, and it was a Bible college, and so they had chapel each week, which was a couple times a week we'd have a guest speaker come in 
and speak and share a sermon, share a message. And this one speaker came in and he shared from this passage and he encouraged people to give up everything they had to the church. Now, one of the students who was there at this time, this was a few years before I was there, uh, he heard this and he was like, you know what I need to do? I need to take all the money that my grandparents left me. It was about $50,000. It was enough to get him through all four years of Bible college. And um, he says, I'm going to take that $50,000 that they left me when they passed away to go to Bible college. I'm going to give it to the church because God will provide for me. And I don't have to hold on to this money as some type of security blanket. God's going to provide. So I'm going to give this money to the church. So he wrote out a check for $50,000. He cashed out that account. Well, next semester rolls around. He can't pay for his bills. And he's like, God, provide for me. God, provide for me. And no money came, and he had to drop out of school. And the professor said, as far as he knew, the, the man had never gone back to Bible college and never pursued his dream of going into ministry. And he said this very profound statement to me. He says, don't ask God to provide what he's already provided. And I think that's an important thing to remember here is that when we look at this passage, God's not asking us to give up everything he's already provided us. He might have provided us some things to accomplish the tasks he's already called us to. It would be stupid to give those away when he's provided for us to accomplish the things that he wants us to do. At the same time, there can be an unhealthy point where we look to the things that we have for some type of spiritual identity or worth, and that's dangerous. Let's look here at Luke chapter 18, and we'll see what Jesus says. We're going to read verses 18 through 23 first, and then we're going to look farther down in the passage in a minute. A ruler asked him, and when it says ruler, this is someone who uh, has political position. He has money, he has wealth, and he has um, political power in this Roman era where there's been this marriage between the Jewish authorities and the Roman Empire. A ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. I have kept all these things from my youth, the ruler said. And when Jesus heard this, he told him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And after he heard this, he became extremely sad because the man was very rich. So it's interesting here. I just want to pull out a couple things before we go on and see what Jesus says after this encounter. But notice first that Jesus asks him a question. The man goes, what do I need to inherit eternal life? And we'd be like, okay, you need to accept Jesus Christ as your savior. You need to believe he's the son of God, that he came down to earth, that he died in your place. He died in my place to pay the penalty for our sins so we could have a relationship with God. I mean, we'd be spewing out the answers, right? We'd be giving them this formula for how to have an encounter with Jesus. And Jesus is very interesting here. He says, why do you call me good? The man says, you're a good teacher. And Jesus says, yes, but am I God? He says, there's no one good except for God. He says, you call me good. Are you calling me God? That's a fundamental question, right? If this man just thinks he's a good man, well, then he's going to miss out on everything that Jesus is and everything that Jesus wants to do for him and in him. It's interesting that Jesus always takes time to ask questions to people, not because he doesn't know the answer, but because he wants us to think about the answer. So many times we talk without thinking. 
We hear people without really listening. We're thinking about our next response instead of thinking about what they're saying, what they're feeling, and what they actually need. Jesus was incredibly patient with people. Uh, notice here, he wasn't in a hurry to get to the point where he's like, just follow me already. He wanted to work through the issues that this guy had. He wanted to be involved and help him see where he still needed to grow as a person. Many times we're so impatient with people when God's been patient with us. So he says here, why do you call me good? There's no one good except for God. And then he says, essentially, how are you judging goodness? He's asking this man, what makes someone good? He says, you know, don't steal, don't commit adultery, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And this man makes this really extreme uh, answer here. He says, I have kept all these from my youth. Now, this tells us something about this guy, right? He says, I never dishonored my parents, not even once. I've never lied, not even once. I've never taken anything that wasn't mine, even once. I've never committed adultery, or as Jesus defined adultery, even thought a lustful thought. He says, I've never murdered. I've never been so angry with someone that I hated them. This guy essentially says, I'm going to heaven because of how good I am. That's what he's saying. Now, remember what Jesus told him at the beginning. There's no one good except for God. And so this whole discussion, Jesus is trying to get the young man to admit, you're not as good as you think. Now, nobody likes to hear that, right? But we all need to recognize that none of us are good enough to reach God on our own. If we spend the rest of our life doing good and not making any more destructive actions or words or thoughts, we still won't ever have enough good to outweigh the bad that we've done. And so what Jesus is trying to get the man is to recognize and admit is that he's not good, that he needs Jesus. But the man says, no, I've kept all these from my youth. And so Jesus finds one area where he knows the man will admit that he's not as good as he thinks he is. And so he says, sell all you have and distribute it to the poor. Now, this is not a command to everyone. This is a command to this man to help him recognize that he's not as righteous. He's not as good as he thinks he is. If he's truly as righteous and as good and as perfect in his mind as he thinks he is, then he will wholeheartedly give everything he has away because he treasures eternal life that highly. But he doesn't. And so Jesus says this not to say that you can't be saved unless you sell everything you have, not to say that by selling everything or by doing these actions, keeping these laws, you are saved. No, Jesus is setting up this whole scenario in order so that the man admits that he needs Jesus, that he's not as good as he thinks, that he can't earn salvation on his own. And then notice here, in case there was any question, right at the end, Jesus says, then come follow me. Following Jesus is always the path to salvation. What Jesus said is, I came not into the world to condemn the world, but to rescue the world. He died on the cross to render the destructive things in you and me uh, defeated so that we can have a relationship with God, so that we can live for God both here and forever. And that all begins when we begin to follow Jesus. We become his disciples, students of Jesus, the way that he lived and loved. We come to him and we say, Lord Jesus, I'm not good enough. I couldn't do it on my own. I desperately need you to rescue me. You are good because you are God. Now, after this, the man went away extremely sad because he was very rich. He recognized here that if he was going to follow Jesus, Jesus wasn't going to let this man follow him until he recognized how bad he was. 
Until we recognize how bad we are, we won't truly become a follower of Jesus because we won't recognize how much we need him. Eugene Peterson said that the whole Christian life is learning how to die. It's learning how to die. Now, all of us are going to die. The question is, are we going to learn how to die to ourselves so we can live for Christ? We can't escape physical death, but we can't escape spiritual death. And the Christian life is learning how to die to self so that Christ can live through you. See, for some of us, there's some things in our lives. Maybe it's our riches. Maybe it's our ambitions. Maybe it's our comfort. And these are things where we think, I'm never going to die to that because I love that. Until we die to the things that we cling on to, we will never live for Christ. At least not to the full extent that we can. Now notice here what Jesus says. Jesus notices how sad the man is after he says this. You can't follow me until you recognize how bad you are. He continues then in verse 24. Seeing that the man became sad, Jesus said this. How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, well, then who can be saved? And he replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And then Peter said, look, we have left everything we had and followed you. And so Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, there is no one who has left a house or wife, or brothers, or sisters, or parents, or children because of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more at this time and eternal life in the age to come. So Jesus makes this really controversial statement in his day here. He says it's hard for the rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now remember, in first century Jewish culture, they considered that the rich were the most blessed by God and therefore the most spiritual. And so his disciples here say, if the rich aren't going to heaven, who is? Like none of us have a shot because they're the most spiritual, they're the religious leaders, they're the political leaders, they're the ones that we look to as having been blessed by God because they have wealth. And so we figure that they're the ones who are most right with God. Now we don't always fall into this. Uh, tendency today to think that the wealthy or the powerful or the influential are the most spiritual. Sometimes we recognize politicians are the least spiritual or um, entertainers or actors are the least spiritual or the rich many times we recognize are the least spiritual. But we still have a tendency sometimes to look at other types of people or other groups of people and assume that they're more spiritual than us. Like we might think, oh, missionaries. They're more spiritual than us, right? Or pastors, they're more spiritual than us. Or these people who are career ministers, they're more spiritual than us. Or these people over here, or over here, or these people that came from this background or have this story. The reality is all of us are bad people in need of Jesus. Our bad always outweighs our good, and we're all desperately in need of Jesus. But he says here, it's hard for the rich to enter heaven. Why? Because they're much more concerned about this life than the next life. And before we get all on like, oh, rich people, what are, you know, they're so bad. Just remember, remember, if you're in America, you're in the 7% richest people in the entire world. And so we can't point down the street to someone and say the rich were the rich if you're part of the lowest income in america you're still part of the richest income overall in the world and so when jesus talks about the rich he's not talking about somebody else he's not talking about or some rich mainliner he's talking about you and he's talking about me 
our tendency is to focus on the here and now and miss what's happening behind the scenes. Uh, we miss the spiritual because we're so fixated on the physical. And so Jesus uses this weird analogy here. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. What's he talking about here? We don't really know. And scholars get really confused by this. For instance, there was a Greek example where they said, you can't shove an elephant through the eye of a needle. And so maybe Jesus was making a reference to that Greek metaphor. Uh, he was speaking Greek here, but he was in Palestine where there weren't elephants. And so he was making reference to a camel, something that was common and around. Some scholars around 400, 500 years after Jesus began to describe a gate in Jerusalem that after the main gates closed at night, there was the needle gate, which was a small gate on the side, and it would only allow one camel through at a time. But you had to take any packs or baggage off the back and lead it through on its knees because it was a low gate and it was for protection so people couldn't invade the city. That's a possibility. There's no historical archaeological evidence, but some people have argued that he's making a reference to this needle gate. Still, others say that the word for camel and the word for cord or rope is only one letter different in the Greek. And so they sound very similar. And so, for instance, when he was saying camel, maybe he, people actually heard camel, but he was saying cord. Um, all of these are kind of just guesses because we don't know why he used this particular example. But just at face value, we understand you can't shove a camel through the eye of a needle. It's something big trying to go through something small. What's the principle that Jesus try, is trying to get to us here? The bigger you think you are, the more important you think you are, the more righteous you think you are, the harder it is for you to come to Jesus to humble yourself and enter the kingdom of heaven. The smaller you are, the more humble you are, the more you recognize how much you need Jesus, the easier it is for you to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so what he's saying is, if you think you've got everything, you don't think you need Jesus. If you think you have nothing, you're in a great place to receive everything from Jesus. Notice here what he says in verse 27. What is impossible with man is possible with God. You know, I think if I ever got a tattoo, that's what I'd get. I'd get what is impossible with man is possible with God. We put way too much stake on what we can do as human beings, what we can do with the resources and the money and the people that we have. God can do anything. That thing that you're facing that you think there's no way that we can do it, that's God's favorite place to show up and show off. God loves to bring his people to impossible places to show up in improbable ways, to show up in miraculous ways. I've said it before and I'll say it again. No one wants to be in a situation that requires a miracle, but everybody wants to see a miracle. God brings us to situations that require miracles, not to defeat us, not to discourage us, but so that he can reveal part of his glorious, powerful being to us by doing something miraculous. God doesn't want his people to just buckle down and accomplish these hard things. He wants to do things that we never could in ways we could never imagine. Now his disciples here respond and say, look, 
we've left everything we have and followed you. Notice it's Peter here who's speaking. Uh, now, some of the disciples were probably married, probably not all of them. We know Peter, in fact, was married because Jesus in his ministry heals the mother-in-law of Peter. If you have a mother-in-law, that means that you have a wife. And so Peter here had left his fishing business and left his family to travel with Jesus. Now, there's probably questions about how they were making enough money to eat and what his family probably thought about the fact that he ran off with this rabbi to travel around. And he says, look, I've left my wife. I've left my family. I've probably been talked bad about in the community because I abandoned my duties to follow around this teacher. And Jesus says, hey, hang on here. Don't start feeling bad for yourself because he says, you haven't given anything up for me that I'm not going to reward you for. Jesus essentially says, if you lose everything from me, you're always going to come out better in the end of the deal because he says, I'm a generous and good God. You're never going to outgive me. You're never going to out-sacrifice me. Ultimately, Jesus was going to lay down his life for them. And I think sometimes we start thinking about how hard it is to maybe follow God far away from where our family or friends are or far away from where it's comfortable or safe. And we forget the great privilege that we get to work alongside the God of the universe, the God who created life and laughter and music and art. And we get to work alongside him as he heals a broken world. We get to be a part of what he's doing. We get to know him personally. We get to spend eternity going on adventures with him and sometimes we're like it's so hard I don't like it it's miserable I've got to be away from my friends you know I've got to live on a low income remember you're serving the God of the universe when we stop celebrating the great privilege of knowing and serving alongside God we start complaining about the sacrifices that we make because no longer does it seem like something that's a privilege it starts to seem like something that's a burden and so notice the promise that he gives here. He says um, in verse 29, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left a house or a wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children because of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more at this time and eternal life in the age to come. He's not just saying someday, somewhere after you die, this is all going to be worth it. He says, I'm going to be doing things inside of you and through you that make your sacrifices worth it now. I'm going to be doing such a work inside of you that maybe not in the moment you won't be like, wow, this is great. But you can look back over your life and say, yes, I'm glad I took those steps of sacrifice, those steps of obedience, because what God did in me changed my life. It made my life meaningful and purposeful. And God gave me more than I ever gave up. So what do we do with this passage? Okay, so we've heard some bad interpretations of the passage and how some people take it and they say, you need to just give away everything you have and have nothing nice, live in sackcloth in a little cardboard shack and you know, live in poverty and that's the wrong approach. But what is Jesus trying to get across? Number one, what do you find your identity in? Think about it, take some time. Don't rush to say, I find my identity in Christ. Because many times we say the right thing, but the way we live reflects something else. Take some time to think about where do you find your identity? Is it in a position? Is it in a family relationship? Or is it in a, uh, a dating relationship? You're like, well, my identity is found in I'm the girlfriend of this person or I'm the boyfriend of this person or my uh, identity is found in I'm the CEO of this company. I'm the pastor of this church. 
if we don't find our identity in Christ, what that means is we've begun to make ourselves too big to come to Christ uh, and enter into everything that he wants to do in us and through us. So number one, identify where you where you find your identity. And then number two, follow Christ. Anytime we follow Christ, it's going to involve giving something up. Jesus described to his followers that following him meant taking up your cross daily. It meant dying to yourself daily. And so how do you die to yourself? Each morning when you get up, you can say something like this, Lord Jesus, not my will today, but yours. Not what I want to do today, not what I want to accomplish, not what would be comfortable or safe or enjoyable for me, but what do you want to do in me and through me today? If Jesus Christ lived at your address, what kind of relationship would he have with your neighbors? If Jesus Christ lived at your address, what kind of relationship would he have at your workplace? If Jesus Christ lived at your address, what kind of impact would it have on the community? Jesus Christ lives in you and in me when we die to ourselves daily. And so taking up a cross means laying down the things that we might feel uncomfortable about or we may not enjoy doing or the things we may not like and saying, Lord Jesus, you in me change the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this challenging passage, Lord, and thank you that you're not against money or wealth. What you're against is something taking your place in our hearts and minds and lives. And Lord, I pray that if there's something that we exalt above you, that you'll take it from us. And Lord, we pray that you'll take it gently and kindly with compassion uh, because, Lord, we know that you're a kind God. But Lord, we pray that you'll take the destructive things out of our lives, that we might turn back to you, that we might serve you, and that we might die to ourselves and live for you so that this world might be changed, so that the name of Jesus might be lifted up, and that your glory might shine forever. And I pray this all like I believe Jesus would. Amen.
here's what's happening in the month of February at Horizon. We have small groups that gather in local homes on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sunday evenings. You can email connect at horizonphilly.com for directions and details. If you would like to make a donation to Horizon Community Church, you can give online or at our next live service on March 4th. Continue to pray for God's direction as we finalize details of using a local church building to start weekly live services. In March, we are going to start a new series on the book of James. From all of us at Horizon, we hope your week is full of grace and peace.